Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Listeners, welcome to another episode of Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the Digital First National Museum of American Religion, a podcast series dedicated to better understanding and participating in the American Project by showing the vast influence of religion on America and America on religion, which includes the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. We invite you to join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by registering at nmar.org forward slash sign up, and that sign up is hyphenated. Since last summer, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan in the wake of America's departure, some 70,000-plus Afghan refugees have come to the United States through Operation Allies Welcome. This has taxed the country's capacity to resettle these people, men, women, and children, who fled for their lives, all of whom, it is safe to say, have experienced severe trauma on their way to the United States. There are nine non-governmental agencies the United States government has depended upon to help resettle them. Since seven of those are religious-based agencies, the National Museum of American Religion thought it would be helpful to learn about these organizations, their origins, and their work. Today we have with us Sharif Ali, CEO of Islamic Relief USA, which organization, it should be noted, has applied to be the 10th non-governmental refugee resettlement agency, and Elissa McConkie, a welfare and self-reliance consultant for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is also not one of the nine resettlement agencies, but works with several of them to help in this work. Thank you both for being here. Alyssa, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the founding of the humanitarian arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the how, when, and why? I think many of our listeners will have heard of this church, or at least its nickname, the Mormons, but they probably don't know much about uh, the relief efforts, the, the non-governmental uh, relief efforts that the church has undertaken in the past. 
Gladly. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, itself was founded in, uh, in 1830 and since then has always responded to suffering caused by various disasters uh, or um, needs of people throughout the world. But our humanitarian efforts became more methodical and organized in 1985 in response to the devastating famine in Ethiopia that year. Our church members were asked that year to fast or to abstain from food and drink for up to a 24-hour period and donate the funds they would have used on those meals. Those fasts raised over $11 million for relief efforts. So our mission is to help others feel the love of Jesus Christ by relieving suffering, instilling hope and building stability to strengthen families and promote individual dignity. Since 1985, we have sent more than $1.2 billion in assistance to those in need throughout the world. We primarily work through organizations experienced in providing relief with whom our core values align to provide infrastructure, and hands-on support in communities or countries of need. Our funds often go to initiatives assisting the disabled, providing clean water and sanitation, neonatal resuscitation training, immunizations, disaster response, and aid to refugees. Uh, And the funds used for our efforts still come primarily from the donations of our church members. Okay. Thank you, Alyssa. That's helpful. Does the church um, continue to use special, I guess you mentioned some sort of special fast back in the mid-1980s for a particular uh, disaster in Ethiopia? Is that still how uh, they do that? They fund this? Uh, now, most of the donations just come in um, from our members uh, on, uh, you know, in, in $1 or $500 increments, um, not necessarily in collaboration or, or in conjunction with, uh, with a particular fast, though that has been done a few times uh, throughout the history of the church. But more often, it's just donations that the church members make uh, as they feel so inclined. Okay. Before we move over to Sharif and ask the same question of his organization, uh, I wanted to ask you, Alyssa, what sort of, and you mentioned this sort of in passing, but what are, are there doctrines or teachings, specific doctrines or teachings in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, that drive this sort of work? Is there, is there scriptural or other sort of fundamentally religious tenets that drive this and support it? Are, uh, there are scriptures uh, that we um, that we looked to that encourage us to take care of one another, to love. You're breaking up, Alyssa. Sorry, um, is that better? Yeah, why don't you start over? I think uh, we okay. didn't get any of that. Uh, certainly, there are scriptures that we look to that um, that encourage us to love one another, to um, to seek out and help the stranger, 
to um, to care for one another, uh, and all of those play into uh, the the reason for our assistance. Uh, this concept that we are our brothers' keepers, that we are responsible for uh, the well being of our neighbors, and so that all plays into it. And specifically with our um, our assistance to refugees, uh, just our own. Uh, history within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our own plight of being forced to flee um, uh, because of our religious beliefs um, uh, has also encouraged us and, and helps us to understand the plight of refugees throughout the world and creates a desire in us to help those who are being persecuted for religious or other beliefs. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Sharif, let's turn to you. Uh, what's the origin story of Islamic Relief USA? How, when, where, why? Yeah, uh, thank you, Chris. Um, the origin story actually um, is, is a great story. Um, in, in the United States, Islamic Relief USA started in 1993 uh, in response to the, um, uh, the, the crisis in Bosnia. Um, and uh, it, however, uh, the seeds of this institution started out in the UK in 1984, similar to uh, my friend here, Alyssa, and in response to the East Africa uh, drought in Ethiopia, um, our, there was a group of young uh, Muslim doctors studying in England who were, who were saying, we have to do more to help and support those who are in need right now. And they started collecting uh, support from other Muslim uh, Muslims in the community, Muslim youth. Um, their first donation was actually 20 pence um, from a, a young child um, to try to contribute to the to the response to the uh, um, drought and famine in Ethiopia. Uh, from there, uh, it started in 1984. Now it's operating in over 40 countries across the world. Uh, including in the United States, Islamic Relief USA is part of this federated model uh, where we have uh, partners in Canada, UK, Australia, Germany, Sweden, and many other parts of the, of the world, uh, where we focus on responding to emergencies and crises uh, through food security programming, through shelter and wa water and sanitation programs. We also provide aid for vulnerable children and orphans uh, and, and guardians, such as specifically widows uh, who have lost um, uh, their, their livelihoods due to conflict or, um, or natural disaster. Uh, we've also established our efforts in refugee uh, spaces all across the world, but including here in the United States. Um, and this effort in the United States started in Burbank, California, uh, two, or th uh, two young, uh, three young people uh, just decided to take their life uh, mission to go around across the country to uh, serve people in need and create more awareness around it. And they started with uh, with Relief USA. And now we have a staff of about 140 uh, across America, uh, eight different offices across the USA. Uh, we are, we've um, helped over, uh, in the, since 1993, over $1 billion worth of aid uh, in that time period, uh, delivered with millions of beneficiaries that have received aid from us as well. And we continue to hope to grow to support more people in need as the world has changed, and, but yet the need still uh, consists, is still uh, is present, as you all know. 
Okay, thank you. And your funds come also from uh, member donations, or how, how are you funded? We're funded uh, from the Muslim American community predominantly. Uh, we don't, where the Muslim community is a little bit, is more decentralized than uh, other uh, religious communities. Um, <clears throat> a lot of our giving is done uh, local community-based giving, um, uh, whether it's through a local mosque, um, so we have created our organization as a national uh, an international organization where we built we've built relationships over the years uh, with local mosques uh, with and directly with donors who are just interested in supporting uh, our mission. Okay. And uh, so Sharif, what about the uh, doctrinal underpinnings of Islamic relief? What, what's what are the holy words you look to or the scriptures from the Quran that you work, look to to support this? What drives it? Yeah, um, so there's many. Um, there are many uh, a, uh, verses from the Quran that reflect on the need to support your neighbor, to love for yourself, love for others what you love for yourself, similar to the Christian golden rule. Um, there's uh, verses that we often quote, uh, including from a chapter in um called Al-Ma'un, or the neighborly needs, which focuses on supporting those who are hungry um, and encouraging the feeding of the needy and um, taking care of the orphan. Uh, these are items that are mentioned quite often in different parts of our uh, um, book of the Qur'an. Additionally, there's a, a, a chapter in the Qur'an titled uh, Surat al-Tawbah, the chapter of repentance. And the chapter of repentance it outlines the different categories of those who are eligible to receive receive uh, almsgiving or zakat, it's, uh, as it's labeled in the Arabic language. Um, and there's eight categories, and uh, we specifically work to alleviate the needs of those who are considered al-fukara or those who are um, who are poor. Um, and then there's al-masakin, who are people who have been put into circumstances where they're in need. Sometimes people who have faced disasters and maybe they weren't poor, but they have, because of the circumstances, are now in need of assistance and support. Um, and then there's people who are traveling. And this is, we uh, directly connect this to those who are uh, like refugees, who unfortunately have been displaced from their homes, um, are in pursuits of protecting their livelihoods. Um, and uh, we are there to help support their needs. And um, as well as those who have been uh, who have uh, been indebted or have debt, um, and uh, there are other categories as well. But these are the predominant ones where we we uh, focus on. And there's also traditions from the Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, where he uh, narrates certain um, sayings as that help us uh, guide us in our charitable giving. Uh, one of the sayings that he does that has actually inspired our domestic programming was um, that a Muslim uh, is not, a person is not amongst the Muslims if they go to sleep at night full while their neighbor goes to sleep hungry. So it was an impetus for us to ensure that we had domestic U.S. programming to ensure that uh, the people that we, our neighbors, the ones that we live with, that we uh, are responsible for, are also um, have food, have security, have assistance as they as they go through the trials and tribulations of life. Um, I could go on for a while about this, as um, as you can imagine. There's our scripture and religion is very rich in the idea of contributing to the greater good. Um, uh, one of the things about Islam that I think I find a lot of solace in myself is that uh, Islam is not 
specifically about the individual. Although the individual has a direct relationship with God, they are able to appeal to God, to pray to God directly without an intercessor. The the big concepts of the, the of Islam re- revolves around a concept of ummah or community. And that community is not only a local community, but it's a global community of people who strive to support, uh, to fulfill their obligation to the creator by create by fulfilling their obligations to each other. And um, I think this is one of the, the principles of our faith that is really wonderful and constantly focuses us as humanitarians. Okay, that's, that's super helpful. Uh, great background, Sharif, uh, and, and some underpinnings religiously. Um, for both of you, and, and Alyssa, you can go first. Um, how, does, how does your organization uh, deal with pluralism? That is... Um, I, I, do you uh, do you look at whom you're serving? Is that important uh, as far as you know delivering resources and channeling resources? Is, does it matter their uh, religion or religious background, or is it sort of open to all? You know, greatest needs first type of thing. Yeah, the aid that uh, that we provide through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is um, for anyone in need. Uh, we partner with um, with Islamic organizations. We partner with Lutheran organizations, with the Catholics. Um, we partner with uh, um, with Jewish foundations, and uh, and so. Uh, the the aid that we give um, is meant for anybody in need, regardless of uh, of their religious beliefs or or lack of beliefs, uh, regardless of um, you know any anything that might discriminate them. And so it is for all who are in need. Uh, Sharif, what what about uh, your organization? Yeah, um, very similar uh, to Lisa. We serve people regardless of their gender, race, or religion. Um, uh, and that's something, um, one of the things I heard actually from Hyas in the past was that um, that we we do this because, they, they one of their um, statements is that they do this because, not to serve Jewish people, but to because they're Jewish. And, one of, and that's very similar to us in Islamic Relief is that we do this not, necessarily just to serve Muslim people, although unfortunately, a lot of Muslim populations right now across the world are suffering and are in need, but because we are Muslim, that we we are meant to serve uh, uh, folks all across the world. Um, so it's one of the things that I feel a lot of alignment with in the faith-based community, um, is that we all are doing this for the greater good and not necessarily because individuals are from our own faith uh, perspectives. There's specific... Um, so a portion of, of the of the giving that we get from our donor base is zakat funds. And some of that has to be allocated to specifically Muslim uh, uh, people in need. However, that's a small allocation of our greater allocations of funding. And we still will use that uh, if, for instance, in the same in the same community, if the funds uh, are needed for non-Muslims uh, or people who have, are different faiths, we will use it for them as well. And we've had scholarly review of that who've said theologically, who've said that's that's very permissible and appropriate. So it's there's some differences on, on how this money could be allocated, but there's a lot of scholarly and theological um, uh, views on it. Okay. 
Thank you. One of my one of my favorite examples of the aid that um, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints contributed was uh, is a story about the Yazidi population, uh, and this is a population that um, that really faced uh, great persecution, and um, and we got to know them through the efforts um, that, that we had going on in, um, in Kurdistan and in northern Iraq. Uh, and this group of Yazidis came to us and expressed to us um, how frustrating and sad it was to them that in their flight from their homes, they were unable to take with them the, um, the traditional clothing that they needed for their worship, for their prayer services. And so one of the things that we were able to do was to donate funds to purchase the material that they needed, that they could go ahead and um, and make the clothing, the religious clothing that they needed um, for their worship services. And I think that that's a, one of the great illustrations of how, um, how we view the, the needs of people, that we all have um, our own traditions, our own faiths, and um, we're dedicated to helping uh, each faith um, to invest in, um, in their traditions and make sure that they're able that's a that's a beautiful story you broke up at the end Alyssa but I we we cut we cut the story and I think you'll come back as you usually have um we are talking today with Alyssa McConkie a welfare and self-reliance consultant for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Sharif Ali CEO of Islamic Relief USA. Sharif, uh, question about sort of the overwhelming tragedies of refugees that surround us. So since there have always been refugees, but since 2011, we've had just a tidal wave, it seems. And these are heart-wrenching stories. And because of news organizations, but especially because of social media, everybody sees everything. And it, it's it's weighty, uh, and I think a lot of our listeners feel the weight. How maybe talk to us about that? How you're in the middle of it. This must look weighty to you, to you both. And we'll have both of you comment on this. How how do you perhaps personally, but also how do how do you as an organization handle this immense suffering that you are in contact with probably daily, uh, and 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 mention if there's religious tenets and, and doctrines that help you and your, your members sort of bear this burden. T talk to us yeah. a little bit about that, Sharif, and then Alyssa. Yeah, um, I think that's a very critical question. I think one of the, um, the challenges is um, being in this humanitarian space is that you're constantly going from crisis to crisis, and very rarely do you have the time to um, reflect and to at times really be thankful for what you do have, uh, but also to process the pain and the suffering that people go through. Um, and I think from a uniquely uh, spiritual and religious perspective, it's, it's our, our faith in, in God, and it tells us through the Quran uh, frequently to ponder 
not only the words of the Quran itself, but at your own life and your own circumstances. And one of the areas that he really, one of the things that I always think about and I share with our team is grateful and I will give you more. And what he means by giving you more is much more than just what we think, you know, the blessings that we have achieved, received and, and so forth. And we're put in a position where we're constantly seeing that difficulty and it really is incumbent upon us out of humility and thankfulness to God to be grateful uh, for what we do have, uh, but also to be encouraged to continue to help and support those who are suffering and in pain. Um, I've been to many different parts of the world. Um, one of my trips that I was on the border of Turkey and Syria in 2018, and I met with a um, young woman and her two children. And she, char- she shared with me a story that truly has stayed with me since I met her um, and has really driven me to be of assistance to refugees, whether uh, I'm at my role at Islamic Relief or if I move on from that role. She was a woman who, uh, unfortunately, her family um, had faced a lot of hardship leaving from Syria to go to Turkey. Her husband um, was one day just missing. She doesn't know what happened to him. She doesn't know if he died. She doesn't know if he was arrested or taken somewhere else. She hasn't been able to contact him or find out anyone who, who knows him. Uh, she was pregnant at the time. She had a two-year-old daughter. Um, so she decided to flee uh, Syria. She made it to Turkey, a country where she doesn't. she's not familiar with the language nor the culture. Um, although it's not far away, it's still distinct and different. Um, and she shared her story with us. Her son at the, uh, her, uh, she was pregnant at the time, but when I met her, she, her son was, uh, I think six years old at that time. And her daughter was eight years old. Her son never got a chance to meet his father. Um, you know, and she shared with me something that really impacted me. She said to me, and keep in mind, this woman might be less than 30 years old. She was young. And she said to me, she said, I've lost any hope for my future but she's asking for assistance and she's saying like, I need you all to help me to make sure my children have a good future. And it really broke my heart because I felt like I was older than she was. And I still thought of my life as like so much further ahead of where I have to go in my life. I still have a lot of hope for where my life is going to go. And she didn't, she was at the place in her life where she lost hope in her own life, but she was living her life for her children at that time. Um, And I think it, it really raised my responsibility like to give back and to ensure that her voice was heard. Um, I had a similar story actually when I was interviewing a a potential staff member coming into Islamic Relief and she told me that she found out about Islamic Relief USA while she was at Fort Dix, which was one of the uh, the, uh, camps, uh, the military grounds that were hosting uh, Afghans that came into this country temporarily until they were able to be resettled. And she said, I saw a box that had Islamic Relief's logo on it. So she went to talk to um, a person in charge of the the site and said, is there anyone from Islamic Relief here? And they told her, no, they just left. They dropped these items off for you all and they left. And she said she kept on trying to find out about Islamic Relief. Later on, she was resettled and moved into Northern Virginia and she saw a job opening at one of our uh, at our headquarters and she applied for it. And she was she met with me and she said, you know, I was so uh, I, I've gone through so much difficulty and so many challenges. But when I saw that Islamic Relief was here, 
I was like, I had to be connected to it. And I asked her why. And she's like, because when I, before I left from Afghanistan, I was an employee of Islamic Relief in Afghanistan, in Kabul. And I was just shocked that this opportunity that she had to just meet with us in, uh, in, in Virginia was spurred because of her connection to her work in Afghanistan before she decided to come to the U.S., um, it really inspired me that the work we do is impacting people's lives, whether we see it or we don't. And I think this is something that makes you live this mission forward. Sharif, beautiful stories you shared. Thank you. Alyssa, how, how, do, how do you and how do, how do your people uh, shoulder this immense pain and suffering and anguish that they experienced in your work? It really is immense. Um, personally, I have been working with refugees since 1999 um, in a variety of capacities. I, I worked formerly for one of the resettlement agencies, had an opportunity to work overseas uh, and to listen to the stories, the personal stories of, of um, refugees who were in the process of, of applying to come to the United States. And the stories really are absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and it can become very, very overwhelming to, to hear these stories, to understand the suffering, uh, the loss of hope. And, um, <clears throat> and what I often remind myself of, and as I talk to um, others who also feel really heavy um, because of, of the story, stories that they hear and, and on the news or personal stories uh, is reminding us all that we are each children of a loving God, that God is aware of each one of us, and that we have to rely on that truth um, to help uh, us as individuals to get through our own personal hardships, uh, and then also to remember that um, as we help others, that God is aware of them, and that individuals are resilient, that they have made great strides in their life, they have, they have suffered, they have um, overcome so many things, and, um, and through God's grace, he will continue to help them in their lives because he knows them individually and he loves them. Uh, I think that this concept that Sharif has talked about, about the loss of hope is really critical. Um, we, without hope, we really have nothing. And, um, and so it is our great desire to reinstill that hope for individuals, to let them know that we in the world have not forgotten about them, that we understand that they are suffering, that we, we see their pain, that we see the, uh, what's happened to them, that we um, will, will stand as, um, as witnesses and, and testify for, for what we have seen uh, and that we remember them uh, and that we will work uh, and do what we can to relieve that suffering. And I think that when, when human beings feel, when we hear the stories of people suffering, it's our nature to want to help and do 
something. And I think that that is one of the things, one of the reasons why we exist as organizations is to allow um, an outlet for that pain, for that, um, for that desire to, uh, to, to help others. And so we, uh, we, um, provide opportunities for people to donate funds, to, to connect with organizations, to volunteer, uh, and to do something so that they feel like there is an outlet for uh, this pain um, that they feel on behalf of those who are suffering. Okay, so you don't just supply, uh, this sounds like a soundbite, but uh, it, it, you don't just supply physical needs, but Perhaps the greatest thing is just that you're there and you listen and, and that gives them hope that you there are people who aren't who haven't forgotten them, that the world hasn't forgotten. That seems like a big piece of what you do, which doesn't require Ab anything tangible but a person. Absolutely. Let's let's talk a little bit about the Afghanistan um, refugee crisis that descended upon us last summer. So this this is the thing nearest to us. I mean, there, there's the Syrian refugee crisis in 2011 that's continued, or, or a few years after that, I guess. But so the, the world, our listeners are aware of refugees flooding the world, especially flooding Europe. Um, and now last summer, 70,000 plus Afghan refugees are here. And so some of, for some of us, it's up close and personal because they're in our communities. Uh, but for all of our listeners, they've read about it. Um, they've seen the stories. Can you give us uh, a little bit of a breakdown of how you are involved in resettling uh, these large numbers of Afghanistan uh, refugees? Um, Sharif, why don't you start? Give us a, a little breakdown of what, how you got involved, what, what you do, um, specifically, and uh, how you're helping, and what that looks like into the near future. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And I think um, initially it started uh, once the, um, the crisis began. Uh, we have a network of partners across the United States that provide uh, refugee integration services, not yet resettlement services, uh, but integration services. So we reached out to these partners across the country and said, hey, we're going to supply you with resources, but we need you to start being able to, to be prepared to help getting our, these Afghans integrated into the communities that where they're settling. Um, and they were basically back to us and say, hey, we have need, this, this is what our needs are in our community. We have this, so many families joining us here and we need to be able to help them with providing them um, shelter, with providing them resources, uh, so that they could access English second language classes and other opportunities for work and and all of these critical functions. So we were we did an initial investment with our local partners to make sure that they were well prepared to help in integrating uh, Afghans coming to the country. Um, after that, we also worked with uh, providers um, like Giving uh, uh, Giving Good, which was a great partnership we established, and Giving Good helped us with securing uh, clothing. Uh, and, and jackets uh, before the winter started because a lot of the Afghans first came into military bases across the U.S. And they didn't have, they came with very little. Um, some people came with just what's, what they were carrying on their clothes, their own, on their clothing themselves. So we were able to work with at least three of the bases to provide clothing, jackets, materials, um, toiletries, uh, 
a ton of different things that our community supported, but also other partners and organizations uh, contributed to. And uh, thankfully, we were able to help uh, there. Then we established um, a partnership with Welcome US, um, <clears throat> and they facilitated a partnership with us in Church World Service. And Church World Service has been an amazing partner. They've been kind of our mentors to help us be able to re to establish our own resettlement efforts. So we have an, uh, one of the first of its kind, us, uh, some, uh, I believe, Samaritan's Purse, Purse and Lions Club, uh, three institutions, were the first organization to establish what is now called an institutional partnership. Um, and we've did ours with Church World Service, where we have, we're in the process of resettling 2,500 Afghan refugees across America uh, with support from the State Department. Uh, and working locally with our affiliate uh, partners to resettle the, the refugees. Uh, we're resettling them all the way from Irvine, California, to Sacramento, to Milwaukee, here to in Northern Virginia, in Manassas, Arlington. Uh, we have about 12 current sites. We're trying to onboard more sites as well to help uh, increasing the resettlement efforts of the Af our Afghan friends uh, coming into this country. Um, and we're really committed to do this. I, I think the big challenge we're facing is uh, this is a new space for us where we're doing actively the resettlement itself. And therefore, it's a big leap for us to, to build up the capacity we need. The funding we've received from our institutional partnership with Church World Service and State Department has been wonderful. But the predominant, the vast majority of those fundings, the, that funding is going to support the Afghans themselves. So we need to build up our own institutional capacity to be able to help more people. And uh, it's been a great experience and a great learning opportunity. Um, and, but we're still not enough. You know, there's still so much work that needs to be done. Still so much more resources that are required uh, to be able to help people. So we're optimistic that we could get there, but uh, it's definitely a work in progress. Thank you, Sharif. That's great, uh, great insight into how you all reacted uh, when the Afghan refugee crisis descended upon us. Alyssa, what's your story? Yeah, so um, while the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a resettlement agency, um, we have been working over the years to establish relationships with the refugee resettlement agencies. Uh, domestically, we, we started building friendships with the two uh, resettlement agencies in Utah where our headquarters are um, uh, um, where we're headquartered. Uh, and we, be we began by providing food and sanitation items and furniture to refugees who were arriving in, uh, to Salt Lake City. Uh, it was then in about 20, 2015 when the first presidency of uh, the church issued a letter to the church members around the world, urging them to get involved in supporting refugees where they could. Uh, and we really began at that point formalizing our assistance to refugees. So we began making a yearly $5 million contribution shared among the nine resettlement agencies in the US and began deepening our relationship with those nine agencies. Uh, and in addition to that, our Relief Society or our women's organization created the I Was a Stranger campaign, which encouraged women all over the world to find ways to get involved and welcome the stranger. And, and we began to see great things happening. Uh, furthermore, through our um, resettlement uh, connections and efforts, um, 
we have been able to continue over, over the years to provide support to the resettlement agencies. These contributions um, support case management. They provide beds and furniture and other basic food and non-food items. Um, and the church members have connected, as I mentioned before, um, they've connected with the resettlement agencies to provide countless hours of volunteer support. Uh, we help with setting up apartments. We help with te teaching language classes, transporting newcomers to various appointments, uh, and so much more. Um, when the Afghans began to arrive, or, or be, I guess before the, the Afghans began to arrive to the U.S., I received a call from the International Rescue Committee, who was the resettlement organization placed in charge of overseeing the processing of the Afghans once they arrived to the military installations in the U.S. And the task of processing so many Afghans was sure to be beyond the capacity of their own staff and volunteers. Tears, and I know that they reached out to the other resettlement agencies to, to try and, and get as much assistance as possible in processing. And knowing that one of our great resources uh, within our church is uh, access to volunteers, they wondered if um, we could um, help to provide volunteers um, who would be able to commit uh, two weeks or more to helping in the processing efforts. Uh, we then received a similar request from our friends at Save the Children who are providing critical support to the children at the military installations. So from those requests, we were able to send out over 200 volunteers who served in a variety of ways at the military installations from welcoming the new arrivals, once their planes arrived, to helping collect critical information from the families, to assisting with efforts to provide safe spaces for women and children. So now that the refugees are um, um, have been placed in our communities, our volunteers are continuing to connect with the agencies that are helping with the resettlement efforts. We're continuing to provide beds, furniture, other furniture, food and non-food items, and continuing to support with our volunteer efforts. Um, we understand that goods, uh, providing goods is important, but in the long term, the real need is a friend. And so um, helping our church members to connect um, by creating friendships, by just being aware of who might be in their neighborhood and, and who they might be able to offer um, um, a helping hand, uh, a friendly smile, uh, and some of their time, you know, helping children who are maybe struggling with uh, schoolwork or families who don't understand the mail that's coming in their mailbox. Uh, there's so many things that um, that these families can use our assistance with and, and friendship first and foremost. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you both for, for the work you do to support the Afghan refugees. I know that is on our listeners' minds, uh, as it is on all of our minds, and, and perhaps uh, in the future, uh, others from Ukraine. So uh, we appreciate what, what you do. Uh, in, the, in the time remaining, I was wondering if each of you could share one, let's go back in history a little bit, um, one event where your organization participated. I, I know you each touched on the founding, uh, and each of your foundings was related to an event, the Ethiopian crisis, I believe. Um, 
in the mid-80s. But is there a story you could share of something that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints did in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s before the refugee crisis of the you know, 2011 and post uh, you could share with us? Uh, that would be great. Sharif, anything? A story? Yeah, I mean, um, there, there's um, related to refugees, I would assume, right? Sure, yep, thank you. Re- yes. Related to refugees, if you can. Yeah, um, I think before the, the reason, I, I think 2011, as, as you mentioned, was like the, where it really, we saw a spur of refugees, um, but there was refugees prior to that, of course, and I think we saw refugees uh, predominantly after the Iraq war as well um, in the early 2000s. Um, and in the 90s, I think um, we did see migrants quite frequently after, um, uh, especially in the 80s, particularly after the, the famine, people were leaving, trying to find uh, difficult, uh, better locations. I think um, just as a story that comes to mind, uh, um, it's I, th- I don't have one in mind right away, but I there have been um, a lot of efforts, um, I think, before the most recent issues. Uh, in 2016, we had a um, we did have a big effort uh, where we started our own um, pr- uh, pilot project in North Carolina, uh, where we were just trying to help with resettling uh, refugees coming in. We we find we hired a, two staff. Uh, one of them was a caseworker. They were el- able to work with uh, the refugee resettlement organizations, um, and you know we didn't have enough money at the time to be able to continue um, this effort. And I remember it was one of the most difficult decisions I had to make as a CEO was this program that was costing us maybe $700,000 a year, you know, and we were not raising enough money to cover it. Um, so it was coming out of our general fund and we were in a situation where the current admi- the administration at the time, uh, in 20, obviously 2017, 2018, was not very supportive of the refugee resettlement happening in the United States. So we had to make a hard decision to say, you know what, um, is this the best way that we could help refugees uh, through this program or can we do it in a different way? And unfortunately, we had to cut the program. And I think looking back on it, um, it helped us as an institution, even though it was very painful at the time, because it showed us that we need to find different ways to help if, with the, the minimal resources that we're sometimes able to acquire. Um, and um, it also put us in a position where we had to be more creative. And now we're able to help so much more and our annual budget for this has grown now to uh, probably closer to $8 million at a time, just five, six years later. Um, so I think um, it shows you the idea of maybe some setbacks might happen, but in the future, if you're persistent and work hard and you stay focused on the mission, maybe that, that setback a few years ago is going to be something that will help you uh, overcome it in the future. Thank you, Sharif. Alyssa, some story in the past. Yeah, there's, you know, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has really, um, we've implemented um, a a three-pronged approach to helping refugees. Um, The first is our emergency response efforts. And through our emergency response efforts, we have donated food, water, shelter, and protection needs. Um, And so, for example, in the last several years, we've provided funding for shelter and basic household supplies to refugees fleeing conflict conflict in the Lake Chad Basin uh, in Africa. 
Um, through our sustained support efforts, we have contributed to education, livelihoods, and mental health needs. We've worked in multiple countries to improve the training of teachers in schools that are educating refugees, improving school facilities and access to technology needed to elevate the quality of education. So um, in Europe, for example, we have established friendship centers where refugees can attend English classes, get referrals to resources, meet friendly faces, um, and know that somebody cares about them. Uh, and then through our resettlement efforts, one of the, the great efforts that, um, that we that we have been working on over the years is um, uh, is through our in Salt Lake City um, and throughout the West, we have uh, in Salt Lake um, a center called our Humanitarian Center, and this is where um, we receive a lot of clothing donations and and other donations, many of which are sold in our Deseret industry stores, our thrift stores. Um, we have a number of thrift stores throughout the Western United States. Uh, and many of these stores employ refugees who have come to the United States, who struggle with the language, maybe struggle with some mental health challenges and, and are having a hard time finding employment in other uh, mainstream um, jobs. And so working at our thrift stores they can get some additional uh, support and uh, encouragement, learn uh, job, uh, the job skills and the life skills that they need to be able to then get a job elsewhere uh, in the community. And we recognized as we were uh, working with the refugees that English, the need for language was um, a real barrier. And so what, we, what we've been able to do is to create a program where refugees come and they work in our uh, thrift stores for eight hours, but we pay them for four hours uh, to learn English and to learn uh, life skills and to get some additional um, uh, psychosocial support. Um, and so it has been a great pleasure for me. Um, I was able to, to go in and teach some of these classes, these English classes, uh, and to, um, to watch the uh, the confidence of the uh, of the women and the men who came to work for us in uh, in our thrift stores to to just as they gained that confidence as they began to learn to write their names to recite their address you know just basic right. uh, simple. Um, skills that that really you went from you know women and men who would often look down to then women and men who would be able to lift their heads up high and right. to um, speak with confidence and uh, and share uh, parts of themselves that they that they were unable to before and so um, this is one of the programs that we've been running yeah. for the last several years that really has. Um, uh, has been a joy for me to uh, to work on and, and to see the benefits of. Wonderful, wonderful stories. Okay, we have four minutes left, and I'm going to give, uh, there's just one last question. I'll just put it out there, and, and you can respond in any order. Alyssa and Sharif, as we conclude, do you want to share anything that has not been said that would help listeners better understand our present moment in the American narrative and how they might play a productive role. 
Alyssa, would you like to go first? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I think that we need to recognize that the situations that we are seeing today are not going to diminish over the years. Um, that the need for care and compassion uh, is only going to increase and accelerate. And that we uh, in the United States truly do have something special to offer, uh, that we have safety, security, opportunity for individuals who are again, forced to flee. These are not individuals who uh, have just haphazardly chosen to, to leave their, the safety of their homes. But these are individuals who have been forced to flee their homelands um, by no decision of their own. Uh, and we have a responsibility as um, as human beings to, to show compassion, to, um, to extend a helping hand, to, um, to, to be friendly and loving, and to do what we can. Um, we come from a, great, a, a place of great privilege. And because of that great privilege, we have great responsibility in, um, in sharing that privilege uh, as we can with those around us. And so I would encourage us to continue opening our minds, opening our hearts, opening our wallets, uh, opening our time, uh, and doing what we can to show that compassion, to uh, create safe spaces for refugees, and not just refugees, but all who are in need of, um, of particular care. And that as we do this, we will find ourselves. Service is a great is a great opportunity to um, keep our own um, our own challenges in perspective and to um, to fill our souls with with light and with um, with hope. And so that's what my final word would be was is to continue to finding ways to open our hearts and um, and serving those in need. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Alyssa. You really um, took some of the words out of my mouth, so I will, I'll keep mine brief. Uh, but I, I think the first thing that I'd like to share is that we need to address fear. Um, th these are people who are humans, just like you and I, just like your, your family members. Um, they are uh, facing tremendous pain from conflict that is out of their hands and um, uh, climate disasters that have impacted their lives, um, the economic consequences from the, glo uh, the global pandemic of COVID-19 have also affected so many of these individuals' lives. These are people who are aspiring and hoping for a better life, just like you and I, just like we aspire for our kids, just like we aspire for our family members. And it, we need to tackle the fear that exists in our communities uh, because these are the, for us to have a better world, a, a more loving world, a, a more compassionate world, we need to know one another. And that is a critical tenet of our faith as well, is that God has created us into nations and tribes so that we may get to know one another. And that is an opportunity for us to get to know one another. I also want just to say in closing is that we have a moral responsibility um, as the United States of America to help people. Um, and the reason why we have that is because, number one, we live in privilege, 
But number two, we're the most powerful country in the world where we do have an impact and do have a part to play in some of the reasons why these refugees exist in the first place. Um, in, in addition, because of that, we have to play a better role in addressing the consequences of our, of our contributions to the global challenges that are existing. Um, and I know that's a very heavy statement, but it's a real statement. If you look at the information and the, the challenges that our world has faced, we have a moral responsibility to deal with the consequences of some of the actions that we've taken as a, as a country. And that includes how we address and deal with the refugees that come into America. Thank you both for those uh, moving and insightful last statements. We have been talking with Alyssa McConkie, a welfare and self-reliance consultant for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Sharif Ali, CEO of Islamic Relief USA. Join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by registering at nmar.org forward slash sign up. And the sign up there is hyphenated. Panelists Sharif and Alyssa, thank you very much for taking an hour to be with us today and providing compelling information about what religion's role has been and is in assisting refugees coming to the United States. Thank you so much. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.